New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Having a child with special needs puts enormous demands on the parent. It creates extraordinary challenges that none of us are ever prepared to take on. Our guest today, Anada Banyal, suggests, don't let fear and uncertainty dictate either the goals you set for your child or the path you take in trying to help him or her attain those goals. Annette Banyal was born in Israel and worked with the great master of movement, Moshe Feldenkrais, who frequently taught classes in her parents' home. She has established an international reputation for her work with children with special needs, a clinical psychologist who, since the early 1980s, has refined her method for working with children and now runs the Annette Banyal Method Facility in Marin County in Northern California. She's the author of Kids Beyond Limits, Breakthrough Results for Children with Autism, Asperger's, Brain Damage, ADHD, and Undiagnosed Developmental Delays. Join us for the next hour as we explore ways to harness the capacity of healing damaged brains with our guest, Anat Banyal. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Anat, welcome. Thank you, Justine, for having me. I'm very excited to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you here and to have you talk about this extraordinary work that you do. Let's begin, if we may, with the beginnings. When did you first start working with children? Describe that for us, please. Well, I uh, began working with children uh, soon after I graduated my training with Dr. Feldenkrais, but I never intended to work with kids. I never even considered working with children. What happened was I was very, very young when I took the training, and Dr. Feldenkrais was uh, advanced in years, and he needed help while traveling uh, around the world and to the United States. And when we were in New York, um, they brought this little girl, Elizabeth, to him that was diagnosed as having global brain damage. She was 13 months old at the time and she couldn't do anything. She was a, a spastic paralysis on her left side. Her eyes were crossed. She couldn't lie on her belly, let alone roll on her belly. And she cried all the time. She was really, really unhappy. And her prognosis was hor horrendous. It was like she'd be globally brain damaged and never do anything. And the parents were told to put her away in institution. 
I was there at her first session. I was staying at the friend's house with Dr. Feldenkrais while he was in New York. And um, uh, when they brought when they brought her in, I described it in the book. They uh, she was crying, and then he asked me to watch over her while he took the parents to another room to talk to them and find out what's going on. And I just picked her up and she stopped crying. And then I had this incredible unintentional experience of feeling connected to her and sensing that she's an intelligent being. And I was myself almost a baby and I had no judgment. I had no opinion and no expectation. And then when Feldenkrais came out and he saw that she wasn't crying, he asked me if I'll keep holding the child while he worked on her because when a child cries like that, their brain is not available to learn or change. So I said, sure, of course, and he did. And, and I could feel her changing in my arms. The next day they showed up uh, for another session and she was crying again and it, I picked her up again, I held her and she stopped crying. So he asked me, you know, whether I'd continue doing that. And I said, yes, and it was the second session. And the following day before they came, he asked me if I'd hold her. And I said, sure. And, uh, it's, and I did. And at that point, we started actually coordinating. He was doing certain things up with her head, and I was doing certain things in coordination with her pelvis. And I was still just myself like a child. I had no intention, opinion, plan, anything. I was just in the moment, just being there, doing whatever, never anticipating to be sitting here with you, Justine, talking today about my work with children with special needs. And another thing I didn't anticipate was that when we got back to Israel, I got a call from Dr. Feldenkrais telling me, asking me if I would come down to his uh, institute in Tel Aviv, I lived in Jerusalem, and work with this 22-month-old girl that was severely brain damaged and had cerebral palsy. And I never said no to him. He was such a remarkable master. And he I knew he knew, even if I didn't see what he saw, I knew he saw he, things. He had a kind of confidence in you that you hadn't developed yet. Absolutely. I mean, he saw things in me. He actually told me that. And, and so I went, I said yes. And there I was in, with a 22-month-old baby having no idea. My background was in clinical psychology. So, you know, I studied Piaget and I studied... Psycho child development from a psychological point of view, but not from a systemic brain, motor functioning, uh, developmental point of view. And, um, and I just started doing with this girl what I could figure out, and she responded in incredibly fast ways. And then the parents of Elizabeth invited me to come to Chicago to work with Elizabeth. And I said, yes, for me, it was an adventure. I was in my early 20s. And, and they arranged for all these other kids to show up. And it just grew. And then I moved to New York. And most of my practice was Chicago children mm -hmm. for a while. <laughs> so I thought there was something special about Chicago. And over time, of course, it's expanded. And then... What was the uh, ultimate... What, where is Elizabeth now? Are you in touch oh, with her? Oh, yes, doing now? yes, yes. I had her read the chapter about her and approve it. 
So she, she's reading. Oh, she has two master's degrees, one from from the top universities, and she's married and she runs her own business. And she is beautiful. She walks, she talks. I mean, if you're a astute observer, you can still see a little bit because she's missing a good portion of her cerebellum. That's what really happened. And, and she w- was going to be v- completely disabled had she not come. Well, just think of it. They said that they need to institutionalize her and just like put her away somewhere and here. It's it's an amazing story, but your book is full and your work is full of amazing stories. So, so tell us what is what is it that you do differently? Let's say from a, a physical therapist or a child psychologist. What what is it that you do? Well, I believe that what uh, I do differently, or my work does differently for those children, is that uh, we actually access the brain. I, I believe that starting with Dr. Feldenkrais's work and then what I've evolved from that, we really communicate with the brain and facilitate for the brain to uh, generate the information it needs and do the job of organizing itself and organizing the body and the mind. So everybody wants to help the child, but most systems, the way that people attempt to help the child is by asking the child to do that which they cannot do. So we know what's missing. It's pretty obvious. So if you have a year-old child that's not rolling over or not sitting up or not babbling and starting to talk, it's pretty obvious what's missing. And a natural and understandable thing to do is to try and make them do it because they're there, right? They have arms, they have legs, they have head. If we maybe try to coax them to do it or do it for them enough times, maybe it will, so to speak, stick. What I do with the kids when I work with them is I look, I also see what they don't do. But for me, it's almost the opposite. I know not to try to make them do what they can't because I say if he could, he would. If she could, she would. And I have a profound appreciation of the incredible complexity of the brain and the hugeness of the brain. I have also a background, I have a degree in statistics. <laughs> I have also a background in math and statistics. So I know it sounds kind of like out there, not belong. But the brain is not a linear system. It doesn't go from point A to point B along a pre-paved path. It organizes itself from a huge richness of seemingly lots of random information. Now, these are very big words, but the way it looks with a child is that the child does a lot of little things that look like they have nothing to do with the final outcome. And when we do that, the brain gets the information it needs, not only to organize the functions it couldn't do before, but it heals. It starts doing brain job. So the job of the heart is to beat and to circulate blood. The job of the brain is to put order in the disorder and is to make sense out of the nonsense. That means to organize information. So it has to take in a lot of information and then have the time to organize it? Is that the, the, uh, the opportunity? It needs the time to waste its time, so to speak. Once it gets what it needs, the changes are instantaneous. 
they're really transformational. That's what you, you I think, picked up in the stories in my book. Uh, and I was so happy, Dr. Norman Doidge, in his uh, little blurb that he wrote inside the book, says that the stories are true. He, he sat and watched me work with kids. And that's the quality of the brain. When it has the information it needs, it goes from the no to the yes instantaneously. Now, that's the magic moment, though, how we, you, you, you mentioned earlier, you communicate with the brain. But okay, uh, a parent has a child or a grandparent or an um, aunt or uncle, we're with this special needs child. And we want to turn on that channel with the brain. How do we do that? What, what's the first step? What, what's your best advice for step number one for us as caretakers? The very, very first step is to not try to fix the child. I know it's really, really hard. And it actually requires basically an internal evolution or enlightenment on the part of the caretaker. And that's why I say to not allow the fear to dominate our actions because fear gets all of us to operate on a lower level. Our own brains go into survival mode, so then we start trying to force and impose. So my first suggestion is to take a breath, literally take a deep breath, look at the child, and look to connect with a child. Oh, beautiful. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Anat Baniel, and um, you can find out more about her work. You can go to her website. That's anatbanielmethod.com. And she spells her name A-N-A-T-B-A-N-I-E-L, method.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, and she's the author of Kids Beyond Limits. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Annette Baniel, and she's the author of Kids Beyond Limits. We're talking about special needs children, and we're going to also talk about adults with special needs. It, when we were talking, you were, Annette, uh, talking about how the brain needs to be engaged, and it can be engaged. This is so, so very exciting. So how, how, 
to be slow with the child. You have some essentials that you talk about. First of all, you say we have to engage our own brain. You're talking about being aware that to be with the child. And what else can we do to really connect with that child? Yes. Well, uh, I have the nine essentials that you just mentioned, and each and every one of them actually is a mechanism to connect with a child. So the parent doesn't have to worry, how do I connect with a child? Uh, the, the first essential, which is kind of like the fundamental basic essential, uh, is what I call movement with attention. Uh, movement is everywhere. I call it the language of the brain. In waking hour, the brain, but estimated around 96% of the brain is occupied one way or another with organizing movement. And I talk about movement in the widest sense possible. So it's not just exercise. For me, movement in terms of the body is just we move all the time. If we just breathe, that's already movement. Talking is movement. a, but also thinking is a form of movement. Emotion is a form of movement. Feelings without movement, as Einstein said, nothing happens until something moves. And Feldenkrais said, without movement, life is unthinkable. So, but the, once we understand the importance and the centrality of movement in the, the uh, development of all of our capacities and skills, so most people tend to separate what is called physical movement from behavior, cognition, emotion, psychology, all that stuff. It's actually movement and through movement, including what people call physical movement, that the child is able to organize its world and sort also cognitively, develop its cognitive capacities. So the easiest kind of movement initially to work with for the parent is what people call physical movement. You change your child's diaper, you help them put on a shirt, you you feed them uh, or you give them food and they hold a fork and a knife. Uh, They walk or don't walk, it doesn't matter, but they move and you're there with them when they move. Now, the brain is built to do two things that kind of go in uh, competing opposite directions. One is to form patterns habits. Without that, we can't function altogether. But in order to form patterns, it has to open the conversation, get new information, and do something that's not there before. Young children, they are like open, open, open-ended, lots and lots of new information, creating new patterns. Once the pattern is formed, especially if it's formed under a sense of duress or survival, it gets grooved in very, very quickly and very deeply. So, so like 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 contracting their muscles exactly, and, and, and then they're not able to walk because they're all stiff. Or yeah, something. yeah. So I say and that that's a protective sort of thing. It's it's it's, it's a, actually it's a it's an early pattern. It's a reflexive pattern. It's the flexion. It's the only. Is the only ref- you know it's it's the response to 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 falling that we're born with, and that's how all children are born. All infants first only contract the flexor muscles that fold them and bend the joints. That's how children all children do it. But when there's cerebral palsy or other kinds of trouble, then there is that dominates and the rest of it doesn't develop properly. So. And when we talk about tummy time, this becomes relevant. So what 
what happens is that movement that's done automatically, that's already been patterned. So even let's say a child has cerebral palsy and every time they want to hold something, their arm flexes very powerfully. It's unintentional, but it still gets patterned in the brain. So then every time they intend to move the arm, they'll do it. They have no they do say. The, they almost the opposite they, of what they, what they really desire to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They are unable to succeed. Mm-hmm. And the... And it becomes automatic. So automatic movement or passive movement that somebody does to you over and over again, it either makes no change in the brain or grooves the brain more deeply in the existing patterns. It's kind of a pattern of failure, isn't it? Yes. I think you use those terms sometimes. Yes, yes. It it grooves in the pattern of failure. But the good news and the very, very exciting news and a huge opening for miracles is that the moment we add attention to the movement, and I don't mean attention to the teacher or attention to the parent, but the child's own attention to what they feel as they move, the brain starts forming new connections at a ridiculously fast pace. The estimated rate of, of new connections is 1.8 million new connections per second. Uh, 1.8 million million new connections per second. second. So that's roughly a hundred million a minute. It's about a billion every 10 minutes. Now the brain works with very large numbers. So for the brain, a million or two million is not a big number. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's the kind of number it takes to promote change. There is an example you give in the book, an extraordinary, I think it's a, a baby who's in a body cast. He had hip dysplasia. Oh, yes, and yes. He, I don't, three weeks old, he was put in a body cast until he was something like 19 months old. Nine. Or nine, nine months. Okay, nine. can you say something? I can't remember his name. Maybe it was Ari. I'm not sure. But. Well, I I, I, I actually don't, I use uh, pseudonyms and I don't remember. Oh, I remember okay. his real name yeah, and I'm right. not going to say okay, it. So, sure. yeah, but, but yes, the, this boy was basically a healthy boy. And he was born with a, this, what the doctor called dislocatable hip joints. That means the, the joint was flat, you know, the socket and so on. So there was a certain degree of risk. And the attempted solution, again, which has, is forceful in the sense that it tries to impose the solution on the system and doesn't understand the, the dynamics of how we grow, is there was to put a, f- a full body cast on the boy. I mean, up to the top of his chest, so his arms and shoulders were free, but the, the torso, pelvis, legs were in a body cast. And that denied the boy not only attention to the movement, it denied him movement. So when there was no movement, there's no information coming or enough information coming to the system. And and so the brain can't map the body. You see, Justine, the, the body is represented in the brain only very minimally at birth. There are connections and there's a lot of random movement and there are reflexes, but it's nothing like what a hand that can hold a pen and write a letter, the degree of connections, the number of connections, the mapping, it's literally a representation 
of the body in action in the brain. So those are early early months. Is there's a lot of mapping going on? There's Huge so amount much learning going on just through random mo- movement. And- so here's a baby who's been stabilized and, and hasn't moved. Now the cast is off, and I think that the hips actually did improve then. Uh, I'm not sure that the hips improved or not. I actually don't uh-huh. even know okay. that detail. Okay. Um, but but I, he, the, could, the baby he couldn't move. Still was as if they were still, they had mapped that they were in a cast. Yeah, and, and it was a very, so the whole back, torso, legs weren't really mapped because it's through movement and the feeling of the movement, that tension to the movement that when babies move, they feel themselves. They, they're yeah. internal all the time. They just sense themselves. They learn themselves. They discover themselves. So, when so he, what did you do first when you <laughs> Well, first I just looked at the baby. You know, I connect with the child. And he was like, a Gerber baby. He was this beautiful, pink cheeks, intense little personality. I looked and I thought, how come this baby doesn't move? He looks as healthy as they come, let me tell you. And then when I heard the story, I got it. So then I knew that this child needs to, first and foremost, start feeling its back, its lower back, the chest moving, the relationships between movements here and there and the legs. Within 20 minutes, within 20 minutes, I felt that he was ready to roll on his belly. So I just, you know, moved his legs one over the other. He flipped over to his belly. I did some work on his belly, you know, rocking him, just getting him to discover himself. I had no specific expectation, but then the child moved himself up on all fours. It it was remarkable, the speed. And then he started rocking forward and backwards on all fours. And I, you know, I kept moving. And then I wanted to see whether he's able, the back is already organized to take away, you know, one leg. So he's on three, because that means that he's getting ready to crawl. So I took one leg backwards, like a ballerina, you know, a little bit and put it back the other one. And he started crawling 20 minutes. I, I just want, like, this, whatever, works, yes. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just oh, unbelievable. Yeah. His parents must have just been ecstatic. The mother was in shock. Yeah. I mean, and then what I did was they came for an, another few lessons because I said, look, there's so much missing that let's just facilitate the process for the nervous system. But I told them absolutely to put the child only where he cannot pull himself up. Because it would have been too soon. It I wanted that brain to have him. more experiences down there because you see those all those different movements that people don't give any value to not only inform the brain, they also impact the growth of the bones and the formation of the shape of the bones and the calcification and, and create lots of complex relationships between different parts of the body that are important for future more complex action. Anat, you you mentioned several times tummy time, and I know that this is really important. And can you say something about tummy time? Yes. What does that mean? Well, tummy time is some a practice that we've sort of followed the, the the history of how it came about, and it's not very clear where that idea was born. But it's I won't go into the details of that. But the idea of tummy time is to take an, a, a baby that's not yet rolling by themselves from their back to their tummy 
And to have them 10 minutes a day, twice a day, or however long the pediatrician or the neighbor tells the mother to do it, to practice them to be on their belly before they're able to do it themselves. So I, if I remember correctly, as a young mother, it was like it would strengthen them. It was supposed to strengthen them. Yeah. I actually asked a wonderful, I won't mention his name, but a wonderful pediatrician, well-known author and so on. And I said, do you recommend that? I said, yes. I said, why? And he said, because that helps them strengthen their shoulder, upper body, and neck muscles. And I asked him, why? Even if he did it, which he doesn't, but even if he did it, what for? And the thing is, infants, up until about four months, the primary brain is, is connected mostly to the flexors. And that means to fold the body. And through the random movement, gradually the child starts almost like, I'm tethers itself, right? And they're doing all these movements it's, on their back. On their back, exactly. We'll, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Anat Baniel, and she's the author of Kids Beyond Limits. And she works with um, special needs children in, in Northern California and has trained many people to do this all over the world. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Anat Baniel, and if you'd like to be in touch with her in her blogs and her work, you can go to her website. It's anatbanielmethod.com, and it's uh, she spells her name A-N-A-T-B-A-N-I-E-L method.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So, Anat, we, we're talking about how parents and been advised to put their babies on their tummy before the baby is actually able to do it themselves. And you're saying that they're missing some, a lot of brain connections that they do when they're on their back in these, what we look at as random motions. But what's really going on there? Well, enormous richness of movement and experiences for the child. And when I looked at this originally, Tummy time, I wasn't thinking tummy time and it wasn't so widely advocated, but they used to do put babies to sleep on their tummy and I advised not to do that. The reason I advised not to do that was from my point of view, any living organism wants to have the maximum freedom of movement at any given time. That's basic for survival. And, and so I could, and I knew that when you put a very young baby on their belly, they can't get out of it. They're, they, you know, if you look at them, they curl up and they kind of try to pick their head just with a neck. And they, they rub their head against the bed or the floor and they're stuck. And so I didn't think of anything except you keep the child with maximum mobility and freedom. And... Uh, 
Then they discovered the, the sudden death uh, syndrome and told parents not to do it anymore. And then tummy time came in to replace that. But there was nothing needed to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Nothing was lost and everything was gained because when they're in their back, they can turn their head and look and, and, and move their arms and their legs and their back can arch randomly because it's not working. It's not having to lift any weight yet. Right. So, so they get enormous richness and then they roll on their belly. All babies roll on the belly. You also carry them. People are worried about the flat head. Well, a baby will get a flat head if you don't hold it up. But, you know, they turn their head. When they sleep, the head is on the side. So really, it's that fear, it's that lack of trust that the system is going to figure itself out. Anand, what about um, kids who are doing frequent tantrums? You know, I I know that parents get very, very frustrated and and it seems as if like they want something and so they go into a tantrum. It seems like they really aren't knowing what they're doing, but you're saying in in many cases, tantrums are just some sort of reflexive. They don't even know that they're doing it. So what can you say about tantrums? Well, it, it first of all, it, it depends if you're talking about a child that has autism or you have a two-year-old that is, you know, figuring their way in the world a little bit. I mean, there's it's a, it's a white. But in general, when you get a kid that has a lot of tantrums, for me what it represents is that that child's brain it hasn't gotten enough differentiation and enough compl- free, you see, complexity. The brain is supposed to become more and more complex, not complicated but complex. That means have a lot of options and be able to integrate those into different. So, you know, you meet, you're an interviewer, you meet a lot of different people and I'm sure each person is a little different, right? You have enormous complexity. That means enormous freedom around your amazing skill as an interviewer. When a child gets tantrums, that means the brain is, is, is regressed. It doesn't know how to deal with the oncoming demands. So it just explodes. The job that of us around a child like that, be it autism or any, anything else, is to, first of all, again, see that the child has no choice at that moment, not to make it like, oh, then it's okay, have, but to look to start helping the child perceive and see and feel what's going on. And that's what the essentials are for. Because anytime we can do something effectively, we will do it rather than get angry or yell or beat somebody. It's it's across so the board. To, to trust that that we all have a natural tendency to want to do things well. Absolutely, but yeah. then we have to help the child. It's yes. not enough, if we left the child alone, they, they need help. Yes. Children's brains grow in the community of adult brains, also other children, but adult. Our brains is kind of like the GPS of the child's brain. So don't we have to really slow, slow, slow down our Big own time. brains? Yes. <laughs> and if we don't slow the brain, and that's we slow one of the our essen- actions. And that's one of the essentials <laughs> yes. that you talk about, yes. the slow. So yeah, yes. we, but we don't slow the brain. The brain keeps working actually at a higher uh, capacity, but we slow our actions because when we slow down and then find ways to slow the child down, something interesting happens. We start feeling what's going on. We start, 
the brain has a chance to notice what's going on. Fast, we can only do what we already know. And that means go back to the existing patterns. That's really important. If we go so fast, we can only do what we already know. We're not in a learning mode then. We cannot learn something new. We can only rely on already grooved, reliable patterns, whether we like those patterns or not. We, this, we rely on them. Is, this is also true of us as adults. A hundred percent. This is because we have brains too. I mean, our brains are no different than children's special needs brains. They might have, you know, a heart is a heart, a brain is a brain, the skin is the skin. It has a way that it works, right? So the essential, the slow. I want to say here something. The question behind it all, what's the information? Where does the brain get the information to work with? And many people confuse stimulation with information. So when a child can't do something, they drill them or they stimulate them or they try to make them do. But until the brain perceives a difference, there is no information. So if I don't see the difference between yellow and pink, there is no yellow or pink in my world. And I cannot do a flower, colorful flower arrangement, okay? So if a child does not feel the difference between their right leg and their left leg, they cannot learn to control them. If a child does not know the difference between speaking louder and softer, between hitting another child or not hitting another child, when their arm moves, I, I've, I've done that with so many kids. You know, those kids that are kind of violent and have temper tantrums, they really don't know that they're doing it because they don't perceive a difference. They don't have a difference. So I take a child like that and I say, not hit a person, but I say, hit the table, hit it harder, hit it even harder. You know, and I hit it and then a little harder. And then we, I compete, who's hit harder? So then all of a sudden a distinction of hitting hard, because when you hit harder, you can also hit softer. Every so one of the, those chills behaviors changes within that session. So they're, they're getting a differentiation right there. Exactly. You, you say, okay, hit hard. They're hitting, so... They're hitting anyway. Anyway, so hit harder, and then you start to mix that with softer and harder and softer. And, and you can just see, I know you describe these sessions, and, and you have lots of videos yes. on your website so people can actually see you when this child is suddenly connecting. To themselves. To themselves. Yes. It's amazing. So talk about that moment when they get really quiet. Oh, this is the magic moment. I always say, I call it the million dollar moment. And I say, my lessons are, sessions are about 25, 30 minutes long because nobody can really learn effectively more than that if they're learning. But there, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of noise and you get the child on the autism spectrum and they're screaming, they're yelling and they're trying to jump off the table. And it's just, it's a mess. It's a royal mess. And then I use the essentials, so there's the slow, there's reducing the force, a lot of variations, movement with attention, getting them to feel themselves, like any opening. I'll take any opening. And then the, the, all of a sudden, there is this magic moment where the kid goes like, oh, they feel themselves. They stop. And I say, these two seconds or 10 seconds are worth the whole half hour. And that's what tells me that this child has a future. These few seconds, that's what I'm after. Once the child is able to do this for the first time, the second time happens a lot easier because the brain learns how to learn. It learns how 
It, it's like it gets on track. It heals itself. It learns to do its own job better to, and it then seeks to perceive differences. And when that happens, you as a caretaker or as, as somebody working with the child, you're very quiet then. You don't interrupt that. No. So say something about that. Very but, important, you see, because so, in, in those moments, a, 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 people might think that the child is distracted. So if, if they were engaging with the child and all of a sudden the child kind of goes like, it looks like stops and the eyes either stop moving, stop blinking, or they move slowly right and left. That means they're engaging internally. People very often try to snap the child out of it, kind of like to get their attention back onto them. But it's really important. It's almost like you want to hover and make sure nobody interrupts it and allow the child to stay there and let that internal movement, because we don't know the specifics of what's going on, but we know that something that needs to go on is going on. And then the child will get out of it and come back mm -hmm. out and then you resume the connection with the child. And here I want to say another place where you don't want to interfere is, so let's say if you do this with your child and you you get them to move, so you put the, the shirt on and you say, are we going to move the, uh, this arm first or that arm first? Are we going to go fast or slow? Are we going to do it harder? I mean, you start giving the kid all kinds of options and get them to feel, or you touch them and say, oh, this shoulder, is it moving? Is it not? There's millions of infinite number of ways of getting the child to attend to themselves. You go slow, you, you reduce the force and so on. And then your child will do new things. It's guaranteed they will do new things. There's no way they won't. Now, and at that moment when the child does something for the first time, just be very quiet. Do not clap. Do not ask the child to do it again. Because the child has done it spontaneously. They don't have awareness. They don't master it. It's the, the, the connections are very tender. They're fragile. It hasn't been myelinated yet. It hasn't been grooved in. The child might not do it again. They might not stand up again for a week or two. Don't worry. That's how it works. The next time they stand up, then they'll stand up sooner after that. It is a process where this enormous complexity gets itself to do more and more skillful and complex things. And you talk about how, how you can convey your enthusiasm uh, without clapping and without saying, oh, you did so well. And all. you can convey it just in the feeling in your heart of, yes. of excitement. And they'll, they'll get that. And it's being subtle is maybe more important. Well, you don't even have to try and convey that your enthusiasm. Yeah. I talk about enthusiasm as an essential. Healthy children have loads of that. It's more like excitement. It's not quite as evolved and matures with adults. But enthusiasm is a verb for me. It's an action. It's something you do. It's you intentionally look to appreciate and deeply take deep delight and gratitude in small changes and differences and in big ones. I'm here with Anat Vaniel, and she's the author of Kids Beyond Limits. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Annette Banyal, and we're talking about special needs children and the brain and, and how we can help them and the brain connections they're making. And we were just talking about enthusiasm, and you've made a comment in your book and in your work that uh, working with special needs children uh, requires an enlightened parent. What do you mean by that? Do we have to be enlightened to work with them? What, how, how can you help us be more enlightened? Uh, by following the nine essentials. The nine essentials are action guides. They're very straightforward. They're pretty... Uh, one of my clients uh, that just read the book, they call them the da factor. Like, da. I don't know. I'm Israeli. I can't say da well, but, <laughs> but I'm trying. I can say it really well. <laughs> Good. Duh. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that factor that you just said, which means once you hear about it, it's like, hello, it makes so much sense. And it not just makes sense, it liberates the parents from the stress, the guilt, the sense that they're not pushing hard enough. If their kid is not doing well enough, they should practice them eight hours a day, not six hours a day, and driving everybody, you know, to, to, to the corner. To become enlightened is, you, you in my work, is, is, it's about applying the principles, the essentials. So when you move with attention yourself, you already become, the ability to do that intentionally is a remarkable human capacity. So you Elevates your own brain functioning and you're relating to your child and others. And this can be like when you're changing their diapers or feeding them. And I mean, so it's like bringing your attention, not just us doing it automatically because yes. we're asking a lot of the child too. Yeah. I mean, and, and that means you have to slow down. So you, you, and, and you don't always, you're, you can't always do it. Sometimes you're in a rush. Sometimes you have two other kids and you have to get everybody to school, but make time during the day where you intentionally decide to move your child with attention or to call your child's attention to themselves as they move. Children do real well with it and you actually train them to be more intelligent by doing it. You slow down. And that can be with any child. Oh, I would. Oh, absolutely. Everybody. I would put those principles in school and teach how to teach kids to read, write, everything. Because this is the principles of how the brain works best. It's not like because I like it, because I named it. And when you bring variations, when you bring your own intentional enthusiasm, that means you are really observing your child and you take internal delight in the smallest of changes and you know that they mean a lot. I want to say something about that. There's there's an uh, incident in your book. You talk about some parents, a father and a mother, and you talked about how when the father brought the child into the session, he really delighted in any small change. He felt very enthused mm -hmm. about that. And then when the mother would come and be in the session, she she focused more on how far the child needed to go to, to, yeah. to read or write. Or, or she was looking at the limitations or looking at all the uphill climb that was still ahead rather than what's happening in the moment. And you talked about how the child reacted to the different parents in different ways. Yes. Can you say something? Yeah, about I just that? want to say about the mother, it, it she she was devastated. So she was not able at that point to bring herself to to delight or to trust 
the seemingly small changes. So when a child is supposed to walk when the, and they're four years old and they're not walking, it demands a lot of the parent. But the father uh, uh, took deep uh, solace and hope in any small change. So he was almost the opposite. When I, I over, it took me a few times, but I realized that when the father was in the room, the child was like a little popcorn pot of popcorn, you know, little changes, pom, 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 pom. And I look for the smallest of changes because I know that it's lots and lots of those that give the big ones. But when the mother was in the room, the, the child was almost like stopped. It, it was almost like flatlined on me. And that's when I realized from another direction, once again, that we cannot hide our thoughts and we cannot hide our feelings, even if we don't speak them. And even if we don't want to, we impact the other person by the way we feel and think about them. So for a while, I actually asked that the father bring the child. It was for about, for, and the mother less. And then as the child got better, the mother was able to relate to the child with greater, you know, she, 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 she was happier and, and then it worked much better. And you actually gave her some exercises to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She worked with me. And she was willing to do them. Oh, she she loved that child. She was completely dedicated to that child. But she needed work. I worked with the mother quite a lot, actually, Mm -hmm. and and helped her find her own well-being more so she could be more well with the child. Mm -hmm. But coming back to the enlightened parent, it's not like oh, now you have a big job. You're supposed to get enlightened. You have to go to the Dalai Lama and sit on a mountain for five years and then go help your child. It's on those small daily actions through the essentials where you bring in your own imagination and dreams, the child's imagination and dreams. You you, um, observe whether your child's learning switch is on or not. And you know not to try and get your child to to learn when the switch is off. Things like that, you you will create an internal environment in yourself of much greater awareness and freedom. And you will create a family that operates in a much more intentional and evolved way. And that opens the room for the brain to find solutions in the face of real challenges. Exactly. You, you, you mentioned the word imagination and you have a particular... Uh, example in the book of a, I think it was a, a child on the autistic spectrum yes. who, who was very nervous and the way they would calm him down is to play this video that he could repeat over and over, but you engaged his m- imagination. Okay, so just vi- visualize a kid there that there's a Thomas the Engine 10 minute or 15 minute video and he says the sentence just before it shows up, you know, the, the, the content. And I'm watching the kid and I'm seeing what is well known, a highly compulsive stereotype nervous system. That's an unhealthy brain. That's a, could be a measure, the degree of compulsivity could be a measure of the health or lack of, of the brain in everybody, not just in the kids with autism. A healthy brain is a brain that does its habits, but is easily doing new things too. So you have both sides available to the person throughout life. So I was looking for a way to get that, to start making some shifts there. And also I thought there's no imagination. He's looking at those images. He's saying the words over and over and over again. 
So I use movement, I use my other essentials. It's not just what I did around the imagination, but at a certain point I got him where I could stop the video for a second without, because he knew I would turn it on again. And, and it didn't discombobulate him completely. At first it did. Oh, completely. Yeah. He, I had to, to, we had to start from scratch and I mean, it really discombobulated him. But pretty quickly I was able to stop it and say, I'm gonna stop it and I'll restart it again. So just remember where we are, which he could do very well. And then I said, let's just say, did the Thomas the engine maybe wanted to have an ice cream? Maybe he, you know, I mean, I just started asking questions and soon enough he started jumping into it. And that's a huge, huge um, a, a marker of health of the human brain because I don't know how much chimpanzees or, you know, the great apes or whatnot or other animals have imagination or not, but there's no question it doesn't even come close to human beings. Look what we have created for better and for worse. We have huge imaginations and it's a very important part of our brain is imagination. So you, you're really encouraging that too. You're watching for that. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're also being able to, to allow them to differentiate in different ways. You just say you do, your book is just full of all sorts of suggestions of how we can work with a child in very imagine, we have to engage our own imagination and Absolutely. be there with them where they are. Yeah, and you know, that leads me to something extremely important. And that's the whole question of variations. The, the biological system, the human life body, if we talk about a child, generates a lot of variability spontaneously. The illness, be genetic or autism or, or CP or, or stroke, reduces the spontaneous capacity for variability. And it's through variations. You see, when we do something a little like this and then a little like that, we create a difference. The differences are the source of information for the brain. Healthy children and adults generate and create around themselves and within themselves a lot, a lot of variability. And imagination is another form of variability, by the way. Mm -hmm. So when you take a child that has special needs and you try to make them do that which they can't over and over and over and over again, you're killing off variations, you're killing off variability. So not only the child doesn't have what it would have had spontaneously without their special needs, now you're taking even more away from them, giving them inferior conditions for learning than a healthy child has. Because a healthy child, when they learn to sit or walk or stand or all the most important things they're ever going to learn, they don't even know they're learning it. It's so important. Oh, Anat, this has just been a marvelous, marvelous travel through the brains of not only kids, our own <laughs> brains, and how, how to work with them. Uh, I thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. I had a wonderful time. <laughs> oh, I did too. Thank you. I've been speaking with Anat Maniel, and she's the author of Kids Beyond Limits, Breakthrough Results for Children with Autism, Asperger's, Brain Damage, ADHD, and Undiagnosed Developmental Delays. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, anatmaniellmethod.com. That's spelled A-N-A-T-B-A-N-I-E-L method.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3434. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.